Let's pray together. Lord, your word is the word of life. Your truth is the truth that gives us life. So we come to your word today looking for life, looking for life and life abundantly. We thank you that you promised to give it to us. And so, Lord, revive our souls through the power of your word. Lord, I pray for contentment in our hearts this morning. Give us true and honest contentment. Let it rain down like a flood into our souls. Would you kill in us the desire for things? Would you convict us of our love of stuff? And Would you help us to find ourselves happy and satisfied in you? Would you do this great work in us for the glory of your name, for the good of your church, for the advancement of your gospel? That we might be people who truly reflect your glory, your honor, your praise in this world. Lord, we thank you for these lives you've given us, even if temporary, even if fleeting, even if vain, even if meaningless. We thank you for what you have given. And we pray that you would make us content. We pray now you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Do that for the glory of our Savior, King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. What a joy to be together, to treasure Jesus together this morning. As Charles Spurgeon once said, the gathered church is the dearest place on earth. I believe that is true. Church family, I love you. I thank God for you. So good to be with you this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're a guest with us this morning, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, just a passage at a time, and we're just seeking to understand what it says and apply it to our lives. Ecclesiastes is a painfully realistic book that exposes the brokenness from which Jesus came to rescue us. Ecclesiastes shows us what's wrong, not only in the world, but in our hearts, that Jesus came to rescue us from. And our passage today is another passage that's meant to wound us in order to heal us. Our passage today is going to primarily address the robust tendency in all of our hearts to love money and possessions. This is a subject our Lord Jesus addressed many times in His teaching. I gather from that it is a subject that has a lot to do with our spiritual health. If you want to know how you're doing spiritually, the Bible often calls you to evaluate your love of money and lack of contentment. I pray that this morning as we expose ourselves to this challenging truth, we would find ourselves evaluating just how much we love money and how much we lack contentment. So let's read this passage and then try to wrap our minds around what God is saying here to us, His people. We come, remember from last week, we approach God, we guard our steps as we approach God, and we do so by listening to His Word. We come to listen to You and to obey You, O God. 
Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 8. Ecclesiastes 5, 8. The preacher says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches, those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the king? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? 
For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the immutable God. May God burn its truth on our hearts. I came across an article recently that was all about how to persuasively ask for a raise at work. The article advertised strategies for talking to management about why you deserve more money, tactics to get more salary. The article boasted of immediate results. The thought occurred to me, what if you didn't have to have strategies and tactics for getting a bigger salary at your job? Like, what if your boss called you in to the office one day and said, you're doing such a great job, this company values you so much as an employee, and so how much should we pay you? Name your price, any amount. Like, we want you to be totally happy, we don't want you to have to worry about anything, and so you get to set your own salary. Well, imagine in that scenario that you're currently making $50,000 a year. And so you decide to ask for double, $100,000. Well, imagine that there's no negotiation. The boss just immediately says, okay, $100,000 it is. Would you leave that meeting overjoyed at God's provision for doubling your salary? Or would you leave thinking, I should have asked for $200,000? But if you'd asked for $200,000, wouldn't you be leaving that meeting asking, why didn't I ask for $500,000? If it's that easy. And after doing the research of the cost of buying a house and the cost of sending kids to college and the cost of retiring early and traveling the world, wouldn't you wonder why you didn't just go ahead and ask for a million dollars a year? And if one million, why not ask for five or ten million? Like, what would be the number where you would leave that salary meeting saying, I now have enough. There's not a bigger number that I could have wished for. I never need another raise in my whole life. You see, if we're honest, our experience teaches us that the human heart is never satisfied. There's no amount of money that automatically is just going to make us content with what we have. There's no number that will just land on you to say, you'll never ever want or desire anything else because you have everything that you could ever possibly want. John D. Rockefeller is considered the richest man in American history. If you translated his net worth into today's dollars, he was worth well over $400 billion. And once, someone asked John, how much money was enough? And he famously replied to that question, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Just a little bit more. You see, the lack of contentment with what we have that we all feel deep in our soul is what is behind this section of the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher observed the effects of money on his soul. He observed the effects of wealth on others. And he writes this section to warn us of the emptiness of chasing after wealth. 
And he writes to encourage us to enjoy life and to be content with what God gives. This passage is structured like a sandwich. So that the point, the meat of the sandwich is in the middle section, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. For those who want the more technical term for this, this is a chiasm. The top piece of bread, chapter 5, verses 8 through 17, is about the emptiness of loving money. The bottom piece of bread, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, mirrors the top piece by driving home the point that money is empty. And so the whole passage is designed to hinge on the main point that contentment is a gift from God. And if contentment is a gift from God, we should enjoy the moments that God gives us as He gives them to us. So based on that structure, let me highlight two points from the text for us to meditate on today. First, loving money is a bad and sad investment. Loving money is a bad investment, and it is a sad investment. In chapter 5, verses 8 through 17, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, the preacher sets out to show us what it looks like to desire to accumulate wealth and what that gets us. What does wealth actually gain us in this life, the preacher asks. And he shares five returns that wealth gives us when we invest our love and passion into it. Five perks of prosperity, if you will. It is as if the preacher is saying, so you want to get rich and have a lot of stuff, do you? Well, here's what you should expect. If that's the way you're going to live your life, here's what you should expect. Number one, he says, the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you want. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Look down at chapter 6, verse 7, where he makes the same point. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You see, more money promises more satisfaction, but it never delivers, does it? It promises more contentment and satisfaction, but it never delivers. No matter how much you have, you are never satisfied. Bathtubs and sinks have that small hole at the top that seems like it's useless. You know what I'm talking about? Those holes are there to keep your whole house from flooding should the main drain get blocked. They're there as a safety to keep the water level from overflowing so that it never overflows out of your bathtub or your sink. Well, wealth and love of money doesn't have drain holes. You can always get more and more. Your cup is never actually full when you love money. And the preacher's point is that if you always want more, you will never enjoy what you have because it will never be enough. If you don't enjoy what you have, you're always going to be continually asking for more and more. Think about it in your own life. If you're over the age of, say, 35, you know this to be true from experience, don't you? Like, if you would have told your 20-year-old self 
that you would be earning the amount of money you have now or had the amount of money that you have that you were earning when you were working if you were retired, if you would have told your 20-year-old self that, your 20-year-old self would have said, wow, if I could ever make that much, I'd never need anything else, right? But it's not true, is it? Because as your income has grown, so has your appetite for more and more. All kinds of studies have shown that the more a person makes, the less percentage they give away. That's crazy to me. Right? That, that makes no sense. You would think it would be just the opposite. A person who makes more should be free to be more generous. But that's not the way it actually happens in the human heart. The more one makes, the less they're satisfied with what they have, and therefore the less they give away. No matter what income bracket a person falls into, they always want to get to the next one higher. The more you have, the more you want, the less you are satisfied. So the preacher says, you want to you wanna go after wealth? If you go after wealth, you'll never be satisfied. The more you have, the more you want. Secondly, he says, the more you have, the more moochers you attract. You, you want to you want to love money and have wealth? The more you have, the more moochers you will attract. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. He says, when goods increase, when salary increase, when your net worth increases, notice what happens. They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? See, money is a magnet for false friends. Like flies at the family picnic... Moochers find their way to those who have wealth. There's evidently a famous rap song about this truth called Mo Money, Mo Problems. It's true. It's true. I read about a professional athlete, football player, who made millions of dollars during his career, but he went bankrupt just years after retiring. You've all heard this story, right? When, we, when he reflected on what was Wrong, he couldn't help but to think about all the, quote, friends he was supporting. He said at one point he was paying 60 cell phone bills at one time. He always picked up the check at the restaurant, at the hotel, and it wasn't because he was being generous. He felt like he had to in order to keep those around him happy. Many of you know exactly what the preacher is saying. When you have money, it seems like you get more requests to support this or that nonprofit. More money comes with more expenses as you have to pay a guy to do this or a guy to do that. And what's left over is taken by the government in taxes, right? Which I think is the point of verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 and this hierarchy. That everybody has to get their, their little cut of it. The more money, the more leeches you keep alive. The reward for wealth you, you want to be wealthy? The reward for it, the perk of prosperity, is watching others enjoy your wealth. Third, the more you have, the more anxiety you open yourself up to. The more you have, the more anxiety you open yourself up to. Notice how the preacher communicates this truth in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Look down at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation 
and sickness and anger. The preacher says more wealth means more vexation and more spiritual danger. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Riches promise blessings when they come to us, but what do they deliver? They deliver burdens. They promise blessing, but they deliver burdens. The laborer doesn't have anything to worry about, he says. He will get up tomorrow. He knows where his meals are coming from. He knows how he will get paid. But the rich, the rich have indigestion and insomnia because of all the worries they have to concern themselves with. It has been proven that the more you're anxious about, the less you will sleep. Just because you can afford a particular lifestyle doesn't mean that lifestyle is most helpful for you spiritually. Just because you can afford two houses doesn't mean you need that extra anxiety. Just because a new business could make you a lot of money doesn't mean you need to add that worry to your plate. That's what the preacher is saying. More stuff means the more possibility of you being owned by that stuff. And the prideful person comes to this point and says, oh, not me. I won't let that happen to me. That's, those other people, that might happen to them, but, but not me. The preacher warns us, the more money and stuff you have, the more vexation that comes along with it. Fourth, he says, the more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Look at chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, this is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. I'm not sure what the bad venture was that caused this man to lose his riches, but it left him with nothing to feed his family on. Perhaps it was a lavish purchase that was lost at sea or stolen by robbers. Perhaps his business idea fell flat and consumed his life savings. But we don't have to think really hard, do we, about all the ways that we could possibly lose wealth in our day. We all know the stock market could crash at any time. We all know the government could decide to just tax us even more. We all could lose a job. Identity theft or cyber theft have left people helpless. Our health can drastically and unexpectedly change in a moment. See, just because you're financially stable and secure today doesn't guarantee you will be at this time next year. Jesus warned us rich people, and yes, we are the rich people that the Bible addresses. If you think about it in the history of the world, and in fact, you think about it just in the world today, if you have a place to live, if you have a car, if you got here in a car, if you took a shower this morning, if you have multiple pairs of clothes that you could have chosen to wear, you're rich. I'm rich. And the Bible addresses us rich people and tells us to not store up treasures on this earth. Why? Why did Jesus say don't store up treasures here? Because moth and rust could destroy. Disaster can happen and cause our money to sprout wings and fly away. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And fifth and finally, he says, the more you have, the more you will leave behind. The more you have, the more you will leave behind. Notice verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5. He says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. 
naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there who toils for the wind? So this gets to one of the preacher's main points in this book. You and I will die. Death is the great equalizer for us all. Even if we don't lose our money in a bad venture, we will lose it at death. Death will come for us all. And just as we came into this world penniless, so we will leave it penniless. No matter how much you've accumulated for yourself, you can't take it with you. And so we should view and use money in light of our upcoming death. Now consider the imagery in this example that the preacher gives in chapter 6. In fact, let's read it again. Chapter 6, verses 1-6. through six. Look at this again. This is an illustration of this point. That the more you have, the more you'll lose. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. This is a powerfully shocking image. In fact, the preacher says this lies heavy on mankind. This is a heavy point. He said, in a book full of heavy points, the preacher says this is a heavy point. The preacher calls us to imagine a man who has everything. I mean, just imagine the man who has everything. I mean, he has it all, the preacher says. But the only thing he doesn't have is contentment and enjoyment in life. We often talk about the American dream however you define that. Well, in Solomon's day, they had the Israeli dream. And the Israeli dream consisted of having a lot of kids and having a long life. Like, that's what they sought after. Many kids and long life. And so notice the preachers using exaggeration to make his point. He says this imaginary man fathered a hundred children. In other words, he was blessed, blessed. He had it all. And he had a very long life. Notice, the preacher imagines him living a thousand years twice over. And so this man has achieved the pinnacle of the dream that everyone else around him wanted. He has it all. Yet, his soul is not satisfied. His life was so miserable that it wasn't even honored or remembered with a burial, he says. The preacher says, the stillborn child is better off than this man. Now, this illustration of, is tough to swallow. I don't think he in any way is trying to minimize the hurt of losing a child in miscarriage. Many of you know the excruciating grief of that. 
But rather, the preacher's point is that there is no rest for the one who strives for money. There's no rest. No matter how much he has or how long he lives, he will leave it all behind. It would be better, he says, to not have lived at all and given all of these good gifts by God and not to enjoy them. It would be better if he had never even been born. The man in this illustration enjoys nothing. He has everything and enjoys none of it. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And even though he lived 2,000 long years, he died just like the stillborn child. In other words, he was alive, but he did not really live. He was alive, but he did not really have life. How tragic! The point of these five returns on investment of loving money is to show us the dangers that wealth carries with it. Remember we read 1 Timothy chapter 6 earlier in the service. Paul said that those who desire to get rich have pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, notice the love of money, not just money, but the love of it is the root of all evil. And so friends, let's confess and repent of our money idolatry today. All of us have worshipped wealth instead of God. All of us have lacked contentment with what God has provided. All of us have tried to serve true masters. And Jesus said it is impossible. And the good news, hear the good news today, that we have a compassionate Savior. We deserve judgment, but Jesus paid it all. In Jesus, we have forgiveness, and we also have the power to be content. Before we look at contentment as the solution that the preacher gives, consider this quote by St. Augustine. Here's how Augustine said it. He said, Such, O my soul, are the miseries that attend on riches. They are gained with toil and kept with fear. They are enjoyed with danger and lost with grief. It is hard to be saved if we have them and impossible if we love them. And scarcely can we have them, but we shall love them inordinately. Teach us, O Lord, he prayed, this difficult lesson to manage conscientiously the goods we possess and not covetously desire more than You give us. Yes, Lord, teach us. Teach us to manage conscientiously the goods that You provide to us. Teach us to not covetously desire more than You give us. The preacher says, loving money is a bad investment. But it's not just a bad investment. It's a sad investment. That's not where you want to make your investments. But where should we? The second point of the text is this. Being content is a wise and enjoyable investment. Being content is a wise and enjoyable investment. So, if loving money and chasing after acquiring possessions is not the way to happiness. I hope you're convinced of that. I hope you're convinced that loving money and acquiring things is not the path to happiness. 
But if it's not, then what is? And once again, the preacher points us to contentment. Notice in chapter 6, verse 12, he asks a rhetorical question. He asks, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his fleeting life? It's a good question. Who knows what man is supposed to do? What is good and fitting for man to do here in this life? And he gives the answer to that question in the meat of this sandwich in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Look at it again. Let's read it slowly. He says, Behold, that is, pay attention. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Notice the emphasis on accepting our lot. He says we're to accept our lot. This is, this is another way to say be content, to accept your lot in life, to accept what God has given, to be content with what you have. And notice what this passage teaches about contentment. This is the main point. If you're taking notes, star this, highlight this. Here's what this passage is saying. Contentment is a gift from God. Contentment is a gift from our gracious God. Listen, money and possessions and wealth are a gift from God. Please hear that. Chapter 6 verse 2 says that plainly. God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who gives possessions. It's all His doing. However, what we don't usually think about is what chapter 5 verse 19 teaches. And that is the power to enjoy wealth is a gift from God. Yes, we often think in terms of God is the giver of all good gifts. He's the one who gives the wealth. But who gives the power to enjoy the wealth? Because it's one thing to have the wealth. It's quite another thing to enjoy what God has given. This is profound to me. That it is possible to have money and possessions. To have good things from God. And not enjoy them. And not be content with them. You see, both the food and the ability to taste the food is a gift from God. And evidently, He doesn't always give both. Having good things and enjoying them are two separate things, and God doesn't always give both to everyone. To accept your lot and rejoice in your toil and to enjoy the days God gives you under the sun is a gift from God. Go back to our ice cream illustration that we started this series with. What do you do with this melting ice cream cone? You can't save it for later. You can't can't try to grasp onto it and hold it. Just enjoy it. Enjoy it as God gives it. If God keeps you occupied with joy in your heart all the days of your fleeting life, no matter what you have or don't have, your life will not have been wasted. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 commands us to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content. Same command said two different ways. Keep your life free from the love of money 
and be content with what you have. This is an active command. He says we are to passionately and intentionally keep ourselves from the love of money. We're to keep this out of our lives. We're to keep the love of money out of our hearts. Like we want to keep bugs out of our house, we're to keep the love of money out of our hearts by being content, which is the opposite of loving money. It's being content. Accept your lot, he says. Rejoice in your toil. This is the gift of God to you. I know this is obvious. It's a self-evident truth, but I'll say it anyway. No one has ever regretted being content with what God has given. No one has ever regretted being content. It is always a wise and enjoyable investment to be content with what God has given. Let me conclude this meditation on this passage with some application thoughts to just sort of prime the pump and get us thinking about how God may be calling us, you and I, to respond to His Word. How should we respond to the truth of God in this passage? First, pray for contentment and pray against the love of money. Pray. If contentment is a gift from God, then it's not something we go seeking as if it's some sort of lost treasure out there somewhere. God is the one who gives contentment. And so the content person is the one who seeks God, the one who gives the contentment. And so the first response to this should be to pray for it. In just a moment, we're going to pray together. I'm just going to invite us to come together in prayer to pray for contentment and to pray against the love of money. Secondly, obey God's Word on this immediately. The temptation of loving money and things will be to put this off to a later date when we think something's going to happen that's going to make us content. Young people, I'm just telling you that's the way it happens in your heart. You'll think that there's going to be something someday, then I'll be content. When I get a job, when I get married, when I have kids, when I retire, there's something somewhere out there that then I'm going to be content. Don't, Don't let that happen in your heart. Obey this immediately. Because listen, if you're not content now, there's nothing that you can get or learn that's going to make you content with God's gifts. If you're not content with little, you won't be content with much. Be a doer of God's Word, not merely a hearer today. Third, be genuinely happy. Pick that word intentionally. Be genuinely happy with the income and assets God has given to you. Put out of your mind the desire for that raise or that promotion or that bonus or that inheritance or winning the lottery or catching a record-breaking baseball. None of those things will make you content. Whatever you have, wherever you are, find enjoyment in life. I love as Jim Elliott said it, live in the moment. Wherever you are, be all there. Every moment is a chance to enjoy the grace of God as it comes. G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. and The other is to desire less. 
Being truly happy with what God gives doesn't mean adding more things to what you already have. It means often subtracting from our desires. Be content. Be happy with what God has given you. Fourth, battle the love of money by being lavishly generous. Battle the love of money in your heart by being lavishly generous. You see, giving is the antidote to materialism. If you want to know how much grip money has on your heart, consider giving it away and evaluate what happens inside of you. Is money an idol that you worship? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And so pursue contentment with what you have by being a cheerful and sacrificial giver. Fifth, remind yourself often that what you have is infinitely more than what you deserve, but nothing compared to what you will have. Remind yourself often that what you have is infinitely more than what you deserve, but nothing compared to what you will one day have. You see, as sinners, we deserve eternal condemnation. But in Christ, we've been given redemption. We've been given forgiveness. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. And we've been given the ability to enjoy God's good gifts in this life. And one day in eternity... We will enjoy being heirs with Jesus and we will have everything our hearts could ever desire. We will be totally satisfied with Jesus alone. You see, we don't have to have it all now because we know we will have it all later. Sixth and finally, remind yourself often that you will die and let your upcoming death inform the way you relate to money and possessions. Remind yourself often that you will die and your upcoming death, let it inform how you relate to money and possessions. See, we're just stewards who will one day give an account of every dollar that God has entrusted to us. Be prepared for that payday. Your payday will arrive. Be prepared for it. So let's enter a time of repentance, confession, and prayer. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever the conviction you feel, and I hope the conviction is deep in your heart because that means the Spirit's at work in your heart as He is in mine. And the Bible says that if we confess our sin, if we trust in Jesus, we'll be forgiven of all of our unrighteousness. We'll be purified in Jesus' purity. And so let's confess our lack of contentment. Let's confess it to to Him. And let's confess our love of money to God. And let's receive the promise of His forgiveness in Jesus. Let's spend some moments in confession, repentance, and prayer. Lord, You are holy, holy, holy. You are the God who is just. You are the God who is full of wrath and condemnation for those who rebel against You and Your law. And we have rebelled against You. We are not holy. 
We have loved everything but You. We have loved stuff and money. We have found ourselves not content with what You have so graciously given to us. And for that, we are sorry. We repent. Which means not just that we acknowledge we have failed You, but we want to change. We want our lives to be different. We want our hearts to not love things. We want to stop loving the stuff of this world. We want to be broken over how our hearts find satisfaction in everything but You. Lord, please show us our sin. Show us where we have failed You that we might find Your forgiveness to be sweet and awesome. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus and all that He accomplished for us so that we can approach You, Holy God, so that we can have our sins forgiven by You, so that we can know fellowship with You, so that we can know peace with You, so that we can know purity for not just these days, but for all eternity. Thank You for the Gospel truth of our acceptance with You. Thank You that You welcome us into Your presence, that You don't stiff-arm us. Thank You that You say, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Thank You that Your yoke is easy and Your burden is light. Oh, we come to You as our refuge, pleading with You, thanking You for Your forgiveness, and asking You to change us in such a way that we would literally be content with what You have given. That You would make us happy with what You've provided and we would enjoy all our days as forgiven sinners as clean.